chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. And we are continuing with this series in Revelation, but also this uh, kind of a series within a series on the end times, because as we've said pretty much every week, your understanding of the end times greatly affects your understanding of the book of Revelation and how you actually interpret it. And so, I mean, if you kind of remember, we were going through different views of end times and stuff, and we're trying to take everything uh, as it comes, right? So we started with premillennialism and dispensationalism, and, and if this is a timeline, right, we were saying, okay, according to dispensationalists, what, what is the first thing that happens? It was our, our first week that we covered. The next cosmic event, it's going to be the, the rapture, right? Yeah, so remember believers, they're called up and they meet Jesus in the sky and then they're transported to heaven and they stay there for the duration of the the, the seven years, right, of the tribulation. That's what we talked about last week. So this was the uh, seven-year trib and we talked about that last week and we were, we were saying, you know, well, I guess we covered it multiple weeks now, but we were saying based on Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy and we were trying to say, okay, like, how do we best make sense of that and all that kind of stuff. And if we're just still considering this view, right, you've got the seven-year tribulation, uh, but at the end of the tribulation, what happens? What's the, the next thing in the timeline? Anybody remember? Yeah. Yes. So, but Jesus returns, right? Yeah. Yeah. So Jesus returns and he sets up the, uh, the millennial kingdom here on earth, and that lasts for a thousand years, right? Now, we're taking this in stride, and we're just trying to, again, we're not saying this is necessarily right, we're just looking at different views, and we're trying to take it in turn and see what the Bible says, right? So, at the beginning of the millennium, something happens. Jesus returns, but what else happens? Got that answer too? Satan's bound, exactly. So, the beginning of the millennium, Satan is bound. And that is where we're going to pick up this evening. We're going to talk about the binding of Satan. So Revelation chapter 20, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 3. That's all we're going to cover tonight. So this is what the Bible says. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. All right? So, that's what we're talking about. Pretty straightforward, it would seem. Um, And as we just said, dispensationalists and also... uh, historic premillennialists, they would say after the tribulation comes Jesus' return, the millennium, and at that time Satan is bound. Now that's one view, right? or I guess technically two views, dispensationalism, historic premillennialism. But there's another view that has to do with Satan being bound, and we might not have ever heard of this one before. Maybe you've encountered it, maybe you have some interaction with it. But if we're looking at an alternative timeline, And we were saying the 70th week or the time of the tribulation is the entire time period between Jesus' ascension 
and Jesus' return, and that time constitutes technically a millennium or a long period of time, well then, they would say that Satan is bound sometime here during Jesus' earthly ministry or his resurrection, something like that. And they would say that Satan is bound now, or back then, but continues to now, and is bound the entire time until Jesus' return. Anybody ever encountered that view before? Heard of it before? Right, cool, I didn't think so. So, let's just see what the Bible says about that, right? All right, so here's some key passages, and I put key in quotations because it literally is just passages about keys, right? So, did you notice there in verse 1, it said, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, and he's holding in his hand a what? A key to the abyss, or the bottomless pit, abyss. I do prefer the abyss here for the translation. Uh, and this is a, a very big theme, actually, throughout Revelation. So if we're going to try, remember, we're in the end of Revelation here, and if we're going to try to understand, well, what does this key mean? What does it refer to? We should look at earlier uses of the key and see what it relates to, right? If you want to understand the metaphor and the imagery here, you need to see how John has been using it the whole time. So the very first key passage I provided for you there uh, is Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 through 18. All right, this is the very beginning of Revelation, that first chapter, and this is what it says. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, so this is uh, John, he's seeing Jesus. And, and Jesus says, fear not, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. So what does this mean? Right? Jesus has the keys of death and Hades. It's saying that Jesus has, is sovereign over death and the realm of the dead. Because remember, Hades in the Bible, it refers to the realm of the dead. So this is saying Jesus is sovereign over death as well as the realm of the dead. Now, my question is why? Why is he sovereign over that? The Bible gave the answer right there, by the way, in those verses. Because he died, but he is alive forevermore. Jesus defeated death, and so now he is sovereign over death and the realm of the dead. And this idea of sovereign power and authority is actually connected to every one of those key passages. So the next one occurs in Revelation 3, 7. And this is when he's addressing the church in Philadelphia. And verse 7 says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. Now, uh, we're going to have to get into this when we actually go through the book verse by verse, but uh, this is actually a prophecy from Isaiah that's being reiterated here. But whenever the New Testament is talking about David, what is it normally associated with? What are the key ideas and themes that come to your mind when you hear David? king, and you're king of a kingdom, yeah, yeah, right, you're the king of a kingdom, so in the New Testament, when you hear David, you think kingship, you think kingdom, and also it relates to salvation, because Jesus is called the son of David, right, 
And, and so this is saying that Jesus is a sovereign over salvation and the kingdom of God. And that's what this is referring to here. And so uh, it's saying that Jesus is not just sovereign over the dead and the realm of the dead and death itself, but he is sovereign over spiritual life that is imparted to others. He is sovereign over salvation and the kingdom of God. When Jesus opens the door to the kingdom, no one's going to shut it. But when he shuts the door to the kingdom, no one's going to get it open again. He's sovereign over all who enter, right? And then you get this other one. In Revelation 9, 1 through 6. Now, y'all just hold on while we read this, okay? Again, we will get through this verse by verse eventually, so I'm not going to get into too much details right now. But Revelation 9, 1 through 6, it says, And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit, or the abyss. And he opened the shaft of the abyss, and from the shaft rose smoke, like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. And then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power, like the power of scorpions of the earth. And they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. Okay, so you see why Revelation is going to be a fun book to study verse by verse eventually. And we will get there. Because there's a lot going on there. But, but basically... There's a lot of imagery here about judgment, and you can see the correlation between the plagues that God put upon Egypt, right, with the, the smoke and the locusts and all this kind of stuff, so there's some cool stuff going on there. But, but these are demonic powers. It's a, a fallen angel who has the key to the abyss, and what does he do? He releases other demonic forces from that abyss, and they're wreaking havoc on the earth and on the people of the earth, except whom? That's the key question believers, right? And so what this is saying is that Jesus has sovereign authority to protect people from demonic forces, right? If you're part of God's people, you are going to be protected by God from demonic forces. He does not allow them to torment the believers as he would the unbelievers here. So this is a a great reminder that Jesus has this sovereign power to protect his people from demonic forces. Now, we have all that in mind, right? And we come back to Revelation chapter 20 and verse 1. And we read that key again, right? That, that there's this angel coming down and he's holding the key to the abyss. And so what is this telling us? It's telling us that Jesus is sovereign over the demonic realm and demonic forces. Notice that's different, right? The, the, in, in chapter 9 it was saying Jesus is sovereign to protect his people from the demonic forces, but this is telling us that Jesus has the authority and the sovereign power over the demonic realm and the demonic forces because that's what the abyss is, right? It's the realm of demonic forces. And so Jesus has that key. He has the sovereign power over them. And I want you to notice something else that is really interesting about all these key passages. Did you notice that they all take place in in reference to what they're talking about in this life, in the church age, right? 
Did you see that? I mean, think back to chapter 1. Jesus holds the keys of death in Hades when? Now, right now. He's the one who died, but he's alive forevermore. Does he hold those keys right now? Yes, absolutely. It's referring to now, not some future time. Revelation 3, 7. He holds the key of David when? Now. Is Jesus sovereign over salvation in the kingdom of God right now? Yes, of course he is. Even chapter 9. Remember, it's talking about the fifth angel who's coming down, this fifth angel that descends and all this kind of stuff. Well, the fifth angel precedes the return of Christ, does he not? And so what is this referring to? It's referring to now, the time that takes place right now. Even Revelation 20, verse 1, is Jesus sovereign, and does he have sovereign power and authority over the demonic realm now? Yeah, absolutely. So it's interesting that all these key passages in Revelation, if we're going to study that imagery and that metaphor, they all refer to the time period of now and what's happening now, right? So, so let's, let's think about this. Back to Revelation 20, verse 1, the angel descends. He's holding the key to the abyss. We know that the key is associated with Christ's sovereign power and authority. But here's my question. I don't have room to write. What's the abyss? I mean, some translations say bottomless pit. Other translations say abyss. What is that? Have any guesses, suggestions? Okay, yeah, that's, hey, that's good. Yeah, where some demonic forces are locked up. Sometimes people uh, will interchange this word for hell, but I want you to understand that the abyss is not hell. Uh, in Revelation, hell is referred to as what? The lake of fire, right. That's the final eternal destination of all unbelievers and demonic forces and demons and all that kind of stuff, right? So the lake of fire is hell. The abyss is not hell. In fact, the abyss refers to the spiritual demonic realm, as Michael just uh, said for us. It, the, the abyss is this spiritual demonic realm, and it's, uh, it, it's interesting to think about this because it's, it's this spiritual dimension where all the demonic beings and forces are, but at the same time, these beings are also simultaneously where? Where's Satan today? Walking around. Washington. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, there's a sermon in there somewhere, but <laughs> probably, probably. So, but yeah, Satan is in the abyss because it's the, the spiritual demonic realm, right? But as you just said, he's also on earth. How's that possible, right? We need to think about this. What's interesting is there's actually a parallel to this type of place with regard to believers. Anybody know what it would be? The Bible refers to it as the heavenly places. I want you to think about it like this, all right? Listen to this. You can write this down. I didn't put it on there. Ephesians 2, 6 through 10. Ephesians 2, 6 through 10. This is what the Bible says. Uh, talking about Jesus, and, and he raised us up, or it's God who raised us up with him, being Jesus, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This, this is past tense. This is saying post-salvation. This is what God has done for you. God raised you up and he seated you in the heavenly places 
with Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. What a great verse in the Bible. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. For what? You know, for good works, right? Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Where do those good works take place? Here, right? They take place here on earth. And people see the grace that God has given us, and they experience the grace of God through us and our good works. But then the Bible also says we're seated in the heavenly places, right? Isn't that an interesting concept that we are simultaneously raised and seated in the heavenly places, and yet we occupy earth? It's this idea of heaven and earth meeting together. And you can think back to the garden, right? If this is the the Garden of Eden, and the idea was that it was going to be a meeting place between God and man, right? It was where heaven met earth. And so heaven, God came down and met with man there. And so the Garden of Eden became this place where heaven met earth and God and man met together. Well, how does that happen in the New Testament or the New Covenant? Where do God and man meet each other? And dwell in the Holy Spirit, and that comes after salvation in Christ. So Jesus, who is the true temple of God, remember, heaven has no temple. Why? Because you have God and you have the Lamb. He's the true temple of God. And so heaven comes down in Jesus, and we meet with God in Christ. He becomes this temple for us. And so that's how we are raised with Jesus in the heavenly places. We're simultaneously seated there, but we're walking on earth. And so the heavenly places become this spiritual dimension where believers are with Christ, yet we still walk here on earth. Well, the contrast to this, because remember, Satan can't create anything. He just tries to do cheap knockoffs, right? That's what you have with the abyss. The abyss is where the spiritual demonic forces meet with earth, and they coexist in this area here. And so you have the abyss. It's not some metaphysical, you know, cloud in the sky place or like dark just something place that doesn't exist and you can't touch. It's a realm. It's the realm of the demonic spiritual forces, but they still are walking here on earth. And so this is really interesting concept. And you can even see that back in Revelation 9 when we were talking about how the angel comes down and what does he do? He opens the abyss and from the abyss they cause havoc on earth, right? They're, they're coming. They're, they're in the abyss, out of the abyss. They're dwelling in these places simultaneously doing these things. And so when, when you put these two images together of the key and the abyss, it's saying that Jesus has sovereign power and authority over the, the abyss, the demonic realm, right? And I want you to notice how this relates to the verses that come after. So look at verses 2 and 3. All right, so Revelation 20, verses 2 and 3. And he sees the dragon that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Now, in light of everything we just said, when did we say every key passage takes place in Revelation? Now. We've got to make sense of that somehow, right? And so every, it takes place during the, the, church, the, the church age, the entire time leading up to Jesus' second coming. And so if we're to be consistent in our interpretation, we would have to at least consider the possibility that Satan is bound 
during the church age, since Jesus has the key over the abyss, and it always refers to the present time, church age. So, again, it, it might be not something you have considered before, which is fine. And so here's, here's what we're going to say. It, it possibly, if this interpretation is right, it would be saying that Jesus has sovereign power and authority to restrain Satan during the church age. Does anyone disagree with that statement just on its face, right? Would you agree Jesus has sovereign power and authority to restrain Satan during this church age? Yeah? Okay. Now, here's where we have to get to this important question. It's one thing to say, well, this makes sense in Revelation, but that's not the only book in the New Testament, is it? Right? So you have to ask, does the New Testament support the possibility of this interpretation that Satan is bound now? That's what we'll consider. Let's just look at a few passages together, and we'll do something really cool. We'll just let the Bible speak for itself, okay? So, John chapter 12, verses 27 through 32. This is Jesus talking, and he says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then, this is awesome. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, and he said, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I... This is great. When I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Now, there's some important things to note there. Notice how Jesus says, the ruler of this world, who's that referring to? Satan. Says the ruler of this world will be cast out. Now, what's interesting is that phrase, I've got it in your notes there, cast out is the exact same phrase as through that occurs in Revelation 20, verse 3, where it says that the angel threw him into this pit. It's the exact same phrase. Jesus says Satan's going to be thrown or cast out. And Revelation 20, verse 3 says that the angel threw or cast out Satan. Same exact thing going on there. And, and notice the connection there. It's an important connection that we're going to come back to in just a little bit. But it says Satan is cast out. And Jesus is lifted up, and notice this, as a result of Jesus being lifted up, what happens? He draws all people to himself, right? That's going to be important in just a a few minutes. So there's another passage here in Luke chapter 10, verses 17 through 20. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name, meaning they had authority over the demons, the demonic forces. And Jesus said to them, I saw Satan falling like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but this is great, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's a great word just in and of itself. But, But notice what Jesus is saying there. He's saying that Satan and his kingdom, his realm, have taken a hit. It is a fall. It happened like lightning. And that Satan and his forces are subject to who? Believers. 
those who have Christ, those who have believed in Christ, those who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. And, and so they're not able to do the things that they always want to do because believers have authority over them, right? So there's a lot going on there. There are uh, some other passages I thought about including, maybe you remember the time that Jesus was talking about you know, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and people were saying, well, you're casting out demons because you are a demon. And Jesus is like, that's ridiculous. A demon can't cast out a de- demon. A, a household divided against itself cannot stand. And he says, you have to do something first before you plunder a man's house. What do you have to do? You have to bind him up, right? He says, Satan can't cast out demons. It would be contrary to his kingdom. You have to bind him up. Would it surprise you that's the exact same word for bind that's found in Revelation chapter 20? Okay, so that's something to consider. Didn't put it on there. Something to consider. All right, Colossians 2, 15. Just referring to Jesus. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And then Jude 1, 6 says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept them in eternal chains, gloomy, Uh, under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Now, when you put these two verses together, what do you get? You you see that it's saying that through Jesus' death on the cross and his subsequent resurrection, he disarmed the demonic rulers and authorities, the principalities, the powers. He put them to open shame. And not only that, it says that the angels that didn't obey, the fallen angels, have been kept up in eternal chains, It's the same word for chain that's used of Satan in Revelation 20, verse 1, where the angel had a key and a chain. Same exact word for chain there that's going on. And they will remain bound in these chains until judgment day. So you have to ask a couple of very important questions as you read these verses. Number one, is Satan a fallen angel? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Emily Berryhill speaking up. Look at that. Wow. Okay. Y'all are going to have to really step it up if she's the one answering. So, all right. Thanks, Emily. Yes, Satan is a fallen angel. So, my question is, does this verse in Jude apply to Satan? Where it says that all these fallen angels who did not obey have been kept in eternal chains bound up until the day of judgment. Would that apply to Satan? I think it would have to if he truly is a fallen angel, right? That he is a fallen angel who's bound up in these chains and is kept there. And, and, and so I think it has to apply to him. And yet, do demonic forces have the ability to persecute the church, cause harm to the church, and try to thwart the efforts of the church? Yeah, of course they do. No one's denying that at all. No, no one is saying that you know, the kingdom of darkness has nothing to do with the kingdom of light. Of course, they're always persecuting God's kingdom. They're always trying to do harm to God's people and thwart God's efforts. That's what they're always trying to do. And so we see countless examples of this throughout the New Testament. But the point is this, whatever this binding in chains refers to, it does not mean totally incapacitated. Because the Bible clearly says here, all these fallen angels are what? They are bound up in eternal chains, and they are kept there until the day of judgment. Can we all agree the Bible is true, no matter what we think, right? Yeah, so that is true. Fallen angels, they are bound up in these eternal chains, kept there until the day of judgment. And yet, as we just said, do demons actually move about and work and do harm on earth? 
Yes, all the time. Just read the stories in the Gospels about all the times the demons are up to no good. Read the book of Acts and you see the sons of Sceva and all these type of things. Yes, it means that they're still at work. So whatever bound up in chains means, it does not mean totally incapacitated. And, and so I want you to see this. So Satan being bound does not mean that he is totally incapacitated and unable to do anything. And did you happen to notice that the Bible never claimed that? Did you notice that there was one specific purpose for Satan being bound? Look, look back there. You see it in, that, in, in verse, what is it, verse 3? So he's bound up, he's thrown into the abyss, the pit, shut it, sealed it, so that what? He might not deceive the nations any longer. That's the one reason that Satan is bound up. His binding is specifically related to him no longer being able to deceive the nations. That's the respect in which he's bound up then. And then look at this. So it means that Satan no longer has the ability to prevent the nations from believing the the gospel. Praise God for that. And he has no ability to prevent the spread of the gospel to the nations. Praise God for that too. And if you want further proof that this is the entire reason he's bound, just look ahead to verses 7 and 8 in Revelation 20. This is what it says. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from prison. And what's the first thing he does when he gets out of prison? He'll come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And so he is bound to, to prevent him from being able to deceive the nations. And when he's unbound, the very first thing he does is he goes back to his favorite thing, deceiving the nations. And so you need to remember, like, this is what Satan has been doing ever since the beginning, right? He's been actively deceiving the nations from the beginning. Just, just think about the people of Israel for a second. God gave them a specific mission. They were to be the lights to the Gentiles, right? They're to be the lights to the Gentile world, to show them that there is a God in heaven. He is Yahweh, to bring them into their community, to show them the law of God and how to live as the people of God. That's what the people of Israel were supposed to do. Did the people of Israel do that? No. They were constantly deceived by Satan time and time again. They get saved by God out of Egypt. Moses says, hey, I've got to go up on this mountain real quick. I'll be back probably about 40 days. What is the first thing they do? I'll make another, I'll make a God for myself. I've got a golden calf here. We've got a lot of gold from Egypt. Let's just burn it down, fashion it into this thing. And then you have Aaron, who was actively part of Yahweh doing great things in Egypt, going, this is your God who delivered you out of Egypt. How do you believe that unless you're deceived by Satan himself? You look at the whole history of Israel. It's just like that. They go after false gods. They make idols for themselves. They're supposed to be this light to the world, and yet they become a laughingstock to the world. They get constantly captured by the world. The nations mock them and go, where's your God now? This, that, and the other. Why? Because Satan deceived them. Satan kept them from believing the truth, and because he did that to the people of God, he also kept the world from believing the truth. Have you noticed how few missionaries there are in the Old Testament? I mean, you, you read about Jonah, and there might be one other story in the Old Testament about a person leaving Israel to go and reach a pagan nation. You don't see a lot of missionary activity there, do you? That's what they were supposed to do, but they didn't. Because Satan deceived them, and he deceived the nations. And yet, this is what's happening. The Bible is saying with Jesus' ministry, 
and his death upon the cross and his resurrection, Satan is bound and he is no longer able to keep the nations from believing the gospel and he's not able to stop the spread of the gospel. You just look at the beginning of the church and you think it is impossible for this group of 12 people to do anything meaningful with this message of a Messiah and this thing that they're calling a church. And here we are today at George's Creek Baptist Church. How impossible does that seem? Twelve people who were known by name, who could have easily been killed by Rome at any point in time, who thinks that their mission is absolutely impossible, and yet what happened? The nations believed. The gospel spread. The church prospered and has been protected to this day. Why? Because Satan cannot keep people from believing the gospel anymore. He cannot stop the spread of the gospel. He can confuse people. He can persecute the church. He can have them believing all sorts of lies. But when God encounters someone with the gospel and the Holy Spirit convicts someone, there is not a thing Satan can do to keep that person from believing the gospel. Amen? And that's something I think we all should praise God about. And think about it like this. How much more does this make sense of Jesus' first words to his disciples when he's resurrected? It's our, our focus verse of the year, right? Matthew 28, 18 through 20. This is what the Bible says. So Jesus has resurrected. He came and he sees his disciples. And what does he say? All authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus is saying, I have the authority. I have the authority over death and Hades. I have the authority over salvation and the kingdom. I have the authority over the demonic realm, over the abyss. I have all authority. And because Jesus has all the authority and he exercises that authority through his people, he says to his people, therefore go and make disciples of the nations. Who's going to stop you, church? Satan can't do it anymore. He cannot prevent the nations from believing the gospel. He says, go and do what was previously hindered and prevented. Because now no one can stop you. No one can hinder you. Satan will no longer deceive the nations. They are mine. The gospel will go forward and the kingdom will prevail. And that's a good message, is it not? And so my, my question, can Satan and his demonic forces still attack Christians and try to prevent the work of God and persecute the people of God and bring confusion and disorder. Can he do that? Yeah. And we see great examples of that all the time. We see plenty of examples of it in our world. We see Christians getting persecuted constantly. We see churches that are being shut down and they're just absolutely tearing themselves apart. We see all sorts of confusion. And we know that God is not a God of confusion, right? We see people believing all sorts of lies. And so believing this interpretation does not deny that that is real and that is going on. But what it says primarily is that, as I said before, when God preaches his gospel through his people under the power of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit convicts someone, there is not a thing that Satan can do to stop that person from believing. He has no power to do that anymore. He cannot stop that. And the good news for the church is it means that our mission is possible. Why can we go and make disciples of all nations? It's not just because we have hope. We have a promise. It's going to happen. It means that we don't have to worry. 
no matter what Satan does and how he tries to attack us, Jesus said that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. It means that no matter what our governments try to do, no matter what policies they put in place, no matter how many churches they try to shut down and what they try to make legal and illegal, the church of Jesus Christ will continue until the end. It means that nothing that Satan and his forces can do can stop the kingdom of God from going forward, can stop the gospel from going forward. The church will prevail and Jesus will have the victory. Praise God for that. That gives me hope, especially when I'm going evangelizing. I know that even if I'm not the wisest person and even if I don't always know the right thing to say, I know that there's nothing Satan can do in that moment to prevent the person I'm talking to from believing. If Jesus will come and the Holy Spirit will come and convict that person, they're going to believe. There is a guarantee of success. The Great Commission is possible all because Jesus has triumphed. He has won the victory. He has bound Satan, and Satan is not able to do what he wants to do, which is keep people from believing the gospel. Now, with that said, keep in mind, and I'll end here, almost right on time, look at that, that there is coming a day when Jesus is going to return, but before then, it says that Satan has to be unbound for a little bit, right? It says before Jesus returns, Satan's going to be unbound. And the very first thing he does when he is unbound is he goes back to preventing the nations from believing the gospel. He stops the spread of the gospel. And what that should do to you, church, as it does to me, is it means that we have a lot of work to do and we have no idea how much time we have left. Jesus could return at any second. And I know that before then, it means Satan's going to be unbound. So Satan and his demonic forces can be unbound at any given time. We don't know the day. We don't know the hour. We don't know when it's going to take place. But when it does, it means that all of our efforts for preaching and sharing the gospel and trying to expand the kingdom of God, we're going to run up against a brick wall. We need to get to work now, right? We have work to do now and a mission to do now. And we have a promise of success. So this should inspire us. We should be hopeful about this. Even if you've never heard this interpretation before, I hope you can see, if, if you're like, okay, I want to sit with it a little bit. Let me consider it some more. But I hope you see it is based on Scripture and what the New Testament says about all these key phrases and helps us make sense of our mission as a church. We can go and make disciples because Jesus has authority over all things and Satan cannot stop people from believing. That's good news. All right, any questions, any final thoughts? Michael, you look here contemplating. Someone could sculpt a statue out of your little your pose right there that you're just in. <clears throat> yeah. Well, so that's a good question. Um, technically, every view of the end times believes in some sort of rapture, right? So, so this would be the post or the the dispensationalist view alone that there's this. Uh, unseen, secret-type rapture, meet Jesus in the sky. Historic premillennialism is, is kind of the same, but really all the other views, so historic premillennialism, amillennialism, and uh, postmillennialism, they would all say that the rapture is Jesus uh, coming halfway, the church meeting him in the sky in accordance with 2 Thessalonians chapter 4, which we discussed, but then all of them would say that then they escort Jesus back to the earth because if you remember when we were talking about 2 Thessalonians chapter 4, the Greek phrase that was used was used to describe a city going out to meet a king. 
and then bringing him back to their, their city as like a convoy, a parade. And so uh, premillennialists would say this is the rapture and then starts the thousand-year reign on earth. Um, all millennialists would say that this is the rapture and then uh, here comes the resurrection and then everybody goes back to heaven for the judgment, so kind of everything all happens at once. And then uh, post-millennialism, they're still getting it together about what they actually believe and how to support it with Scripture, but basically some sort of version of this. Uh, we might have a whole night devoted to post-millennialism and the idea that things are always just going to get better and the whole world's going to become Christians. Oh, a lot worse, yeah. Because people are believing lies, but that's not the same thing as, as being unable to believe the gospel. You know what I mean? Like, you can believe a lie, and that doesn't mean that you don't have the ability to believe the gospel. Satan has enticed people, and it always goes back to, like, the fishing analogy, right? I always say Satan knows exactly what kind of bait is going to work on you. So, you know, like, you, you could never tempt me with something that doesn't appeal to me, right? If you... I've got season tickets to the Gamecocks. I'm like, I've got toilet paper at the house. I don't need that, you know. So, like, this ne- I'm just never going to be tempted by that, right? Um, but, you know, i got season tickets to Clemson. Okay, well, that's a temptation. That's something I might go for. Well, Satan puts the bait out there. He holds the temptation in front of us. And the problem is we, we like sin. <laughs> and so we go for it. And so he knows what all these world leaders and everybody else likes. He puts that bait out there. And then he just waits. And he waits. And then you take the bait. And get you. So, yeah, anything else?